Hi, this is Alina and Megan, and you're listening to Move Your Brain, Move Your Body podcast, where we dive into all things health, wellness, and fitness. We are two certified athletic trainers, personal trainers, and nutrition coaches who met and graduated together from the University of Arkansas. And we want to do this podcast to spread our joy about treating our bodies well through nutrition, exercise, and knowledge. Today on Move Your Brain, Move Your Body podcast, we welcome Dr. Ralph Esposito. Dr. Esposito is a naturopathic physician, acupuncturist, and functional medicine practitioner. He specializes in integrative urology and endocrinology, and he has a focus in men's health. Dr. Esposito has authored several medical textbook chapters and has designed education models for health professionals, specifically on urological conditions, male and female hormone dysfunction, hypergonadism, exercise, men's health, sexual dysfunction. He also holds a position as an adjunct professor at NYU, where he lectures on integrative medicine. I have been following Dr. Ralph Esposito for a while and have been blown away at his content on Instagram. He is a brilliant doctor, and he practices what he likes to call as good medicine. We know that this episode is going to blow you away. We asked some great questions, and Dr. Esposito was right on point and really filled in some knowledge gaps for us. So sit back and enjoy. Move Your Body podcast, we have Dr. Ralph Esposito all the way from New York. We are very excited to have you on our show today, and we both have a lot of questions, and we cannot wait to pick your mind. So, oh, Thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be on here. Don't, don't pick too much in my mind. It might be, might be too intense, but however you guys <laughs> want to go, we'll, we'll go into it. Yeah. So first, could you just give us a little bit of a background on who you are, what you do, kind of how you got to be where you are? Yeah, so I'm a naturopathic physician, licensed acupuncturist. Uh, I also am IFMCP, so did my full uh, functional medicine certification. Um, my uh, essentially, I wanted to get into naturopathic medicine since I was probably a teen when I started going into health food stores and really kind of forced this health food store and locally in, in Yonkers and in Westchester to just hire me. <laughs> and um, started learning more about integrative medicine, naturopathic medicine, herbs, etc. And uh, one of the catalysts, I would say, is that my father has been sick since um, he was 47, since I was seven. So my father has always been um, unwell. And uh, the epitome, essentially, of the chronic medical system or the chronic disease uh, management in the current medical system. Uh, he had he, uh, unfortunately passed away a few years ago, but what he did pass away from was everything that was preventable. So uh, heart disease, cancer, uh, leukemia, um, uh, not entirely preventable, but obviously there are measures that can prevent cancer and heart disease, um, peripheral artery disease, emphysema, uh, Alzheimer's, uh, or some form of Alzheimer's we really couldn't confirm because it um, at that point, he was just so debilitated. And then uh, musculoskeletal really just couldn't walk or move. So I experienced that over a 30-year decade uh, or thir three decades, over 30 years. And I started noticing, and as a kid, I would always say, well, it's okay, you know, medicine's going to fix him or medicine's going to make him better. And then ever, you know, as I continue to start just being a normal human, I realized, well, no, it's not. Right? And you just, as you start seeing somebody deteriorate, you then identify the fact that whatever is 
uh, intended to help him is not helping him. And as I started getting into my own uh, understanding of it, I, uh, in a way, bitterly was upset with the current medical system and said, I'm not going to go down that route because, uh, number one, I probably really hate being force-fed certain information I find to be um, not entirely aligned with the current literature. And then also uh, just not really how I wanted to help people. So that brought me to my undergraduate degree in nutrition. While I was there, I interned with a naturopath, naturopathic physician uh, and acupuncturist at NYU, Dr. Gio, who's a very good friend and mentor. And then um, really just worked there even during med school. And then for about two years or three years after, after med school, did some postdoctoral training there. And uh, yeah, now I am full-fledged in a private practice, which is based pretty much, uh, it's a, it's, I guess it's national over between East coast, West coast, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. I could not agree more that our medical system, it's almost like, I mean, we don't really have a whole lot of like preemptive measures or like preventative measures or really any education on how to like be healthy, um, from, you know, a long, young age. And mm -hmm. it's often just too little too late. You know, you're just putting band-aids on top of band-aids with comorbidities that people have. Um, and so many of these things, it seems like they all have kind of common roots. Right. So, so what's your approach? Like when you're working with your patients, um, do you try, do you, are there certain people that you prefer to work with as far as what their conditions are or? Yeah, it seems to be that people with hormonal issues tend to gravitate towards me. Um, truthfully, as a naturopathic physician, you're trained to really identify and assess everything from A to Z, but uh, my expertise is more on the hormonal dysfunction, uh, men's health, uh, female hormonal dysfunction. But to really address those things, you know, many people think, well, if you treat men, that means you just really focus on men and their hormones. And like, what else could you want to focus on? But most people don't realize that one of the top killers in men is heart disease. Um, and in women, hypothyroidism is very common. And in both populations, there's a bunch of GI issues. So when you look at things like prostatitis and um, overactive bladder, there's a microbiome and gut connection there that is well documented in the literature. So when you look at those things, you can't just focus on one thing. I have to be a generalist um, because otherwise I'd be missing out on a lot. I'd be doing a disservice. But uh, I guess I would say a hyper-focus on the hormonal men's health aspect. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of people out there struggling with hormonal issues, and I feel like they almost fall through the cracks of the conventional medical system because they don't get better, and then they kind of figure out, maybe I should try a functional approach. So I think it's pretty awesome that you um, went into functional medicine to start, and I almost feel like that's kind of uncommon for physicians because they usually yeah. find it later on. So I think your approach, just that's a little bit different just because that is automatically how you how you approach things. So I guess um, let's just talk a little bit about blood work and some norms that you see with hormone measurements and what's the difference even between functional medicine versus conventional. In terms of lab markers or just... Yeah, uh, let's overall? go in uh, both, but also in terms of lab markers. Because I feel like sometimes people, especially maybe our listeners, might not even know what the difference actually could be. And then how it can be different with the lab markers, I think really 
kind of shows? Yeah. So from a uh, integrative uh, medicine, functional medicine, naturopathic medicine, whatever you want to call it. Um, my definition is called good medicine. So that is what I believe in. I don't believe in, um, you know, are you um, focusing on this area or, or do you do integrative or is it functional or is it homeopathic or is it holistic or is it green allopathy or like whatever you want to call it. Um, I, I, I just say it's good medicine based on literature data research, uh, and it combines the art and, and, med- and science of medicine. And when I look at that, I take myself away from this, um, uh, the, I would say the confines of a box of what defines my limits. And I just look and see what is the best based on what I know uh, and what the literature says. So, uh, the way that I approach it is I look at individuals and I say, who are, number one, who's involved in front of me um, and, and what's important to them and what are the things that are going to be up or, or are concerning to them. And then really what it comes into is you assess risk, you, you risk, risk stratify based on their chief complaints. So if they are uh, concerned about their hormones, that's great. But if I see something that's alarming, like, yeah, your insulin levels at an 11, like that's, that's a problem might not have a lot to do that you think with your hormones, but it certainly does. Uh, so I stratify in, in that aspect, but when I come down to it, I really try to look at the, um, the, the total picture when it comes to, uh, the mental, emotional, and physical aspect. And most people don't realize that there is an emotional aspect to health and wellness and especially hormones. Um, so in order to really look at it integratively, you have to really look at every single system. And I take a systems biology approach. I was uh, very fortunate to also be mentored by Dr. Peter Diadamo, um, who is a brilliant man and actually did a lot of, uh, many people know him from his blood type diet, but a lot of his work is based on a systems biology. And if you look at systems biology, it's very similar to Jeffrey Bland, who also is based on systems biology. Just each one of them has a different perspective. And when you look at systems biology, it's, it's integrating um, metabolomics, uh, proteomics, microbiome all together in, as, a, as one system. Uh, so that's really the approach that I take is if you look at it the way I see it is you take science, you take art, and, and in the middle is what I do. Uh, and and that's, that's my approach. And then when you look at assessing somebody, from a bio, biometabolic uh, biomarker perspective, um, I think that's a whole conversation in and of itself, which can go, we can go many different directions. So you tell me yep. where to go on that. Um, uh, I had a question. Um, it was actually just kind of an aside. So I don't, I mean, this is maybe just me like being biased, but I feel like men are less likely to ask for help medically until maybe like something isn't functioning the way they need it to function or um like from a hormonal standpoint like if they're having um issues with energy or with uh like erectile dysfunction or something like that is that like an end stage type of dysfunction metabolically that they should be like what what things can people look for earlier i guess is what i'm asking as far as hormonal dysfunction that that's a great question um uh, a side note on that, about 30% of men will talk to their partner before they talk to their doctor. 
about a health issue. And um, Cleveland, or was it Mayo? I think it was Mayo. Mayo of Cleveland did a, a study on this, and they basically saw that most men don't go to the doctor for something that's urgent. And they would talk to their their partner or their friend about it before. And actually, men are more likely to talk about a musculoskeletal or like a pain issue than anything else, but they really won't talk about sexual dysfunction or hormonal dysfunction. And when you look at men, if you really want to get a first or an early indication of if there is a hormonal imbalance, and and I just want to clarify, um, most people, when they think hormonal, they just think testosterone, but that's not the case. There's, I mean, hormones, in order to really understand hormones, you have to look at all of the hormones. And that is everything from estrogen, testosterone, um, uh, DHT, insulin, thyroid, cortisol, and everything else in between. And uh, the first indication is just by looking at somebody. I could look at their body. I could see, hey, are they overweight? If they're not, are they uh, very slim? If they are, where do they hold their weight? Where do they hold their, a lot of their fat or their adipose tissue? If they are, if not, then that's a good thing. Um, and then I kind of look at, I do a physical exam, kind of look at their eyebrows. Do they have thinning eyebrows? Do they have thinning hair? Uh, are they losing their hair? Do they have hair on their legs? Uh, and some men, assuming they're not shaving their legs, if they have decreased hair on their legs, perhaps there's a peripheral uh, artery, uh, vascular dysfunction going on, mm-hmm. right? So these are all things that kind of tell me, okay, well, something else is going on behind the scenes here. Um, you can look at their ear. You can see there's usually a, a, a if they have heart disease, there's a crease in their ear in the lobe of their ear. And that could be an early indication of uh, cardiovascular disease. So I, I look at all that together and I say, okay, well, what's going on here? And then you start talking to them. You start feeling how they feel, uh, understanding how they feel. And one of the early indications of a male um, sex hormone dysfunction is uh, low libido or uh, low sex drive um, or uh, sexual dysfunction, whether it's inability to maintain, sustain, or, or begin an erection. Uh, and that tells you that there's either a testosterone, a sex hormone issue, or an adrenal issue. Mm-hmm. Many doctors will jump to testosterone and say, okay, well, it's your testosterone. And they give testosterone and it doesn't help. Mm-hmm. And then you look back and you say, okay, well, if that's not helping, then it must be psychogenic erectile dysfunction. And then I say, okay, yeah, that's possibly true. Uh, but maybe this guy just lost his confidence and has performance anxiety um, because he's just so tired. And so worn out, and then you look at adrenal access, the HPA access, and then, mm-hmm. uh, and I kind of assess it that way. And, you know, is it that you don't really want to have sex or is it just that you're too tired to, right? And that's a whole different conversation. Um, so those are early indications, but um, really if a man is having sexual dysfunction, it's usually an indication of a hormonal dysfunction or a cardiovascular. And you really have to differentiate between the two really fascinating. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, obviously we're both women and we both um, dealt with our share of like HBA axis dysfunction and, you know, our, our menstrual cycle is pretty, pretty sensitive. And so it's, it's pretty easy for us to be like, okay, something's off. Um, But I feel like for men, it's maybe a little bit different, obviously. And they're maybe just a little bit less likely to, to ask for help and to communicate rather than complain like we do. (laughs) So. (laughs) Yeah. And it's not, it's, it's not complaining. Um, It's, um, women 
uh, are more prone to actually ask for help. And men, there's there's a dichotomy or a a, a double standard, I think, that men uh, are put into where mm-hmm. you can't really complain too much because if you complain too much, then you look like uh, a whining little guy, and then obviously you don't, you know, you don't want to seem like that person. And then there's the other side of it is like, well, I have to act tough and right. kind of not show my weakness. Yeah. Um, and that's where I think the mental health comes into it as well, which is very, very underrated. Yeah. And just like being, seeing it more as like communication than like complaining or weakness. Like I feel like being willing to be vulnerable is actually uh demonstrating strength, at least in my opinion, but it can be difficult to get over for sure. Um, Alina, did you have a question? No, go ahead. If you have another one. Yeah, I had another one. Um, this is kind of jumping topics, but can we talk a little bit about, uh, nutrigenomics and just, I mean, I know that's obviously like super broad, but, um, how can our food affect our genes and how much can it, and how much, um, should we be paying attention to, I guess, maybe what are some tips for people? Yeah. Um, I think a better question is, is how could it not impact (laughs) our genetics, right? Because it's essentially we have evolved with only food, uh, with only the environment. And it's not just food, it's the environment. So that's the epigenetic epigenetic aspect of it. Mm -hmm. But essentially, um, uh, other terms for it now are called nutrient sensing. So we have certain molecules and certain uh, receptors in our body that sense nutrients. So the more common of this would be in fasting and mTOR, right? So mm-hmm. protein and specifically leucine will stimulate uh, mTOR, um, various uh, complexes, and then um, fasting would kind of slow that down, right? So that's not necessarily nutrigenomics. That's more of uh, nutrient sensing. But when we look at nutrigenomics, we try to see how are nutrients impacting the way that our genes express themselves, Mm-hmm. Uh, how they are transcribed and translated. And that happens every single day from various methylation and acetylation and deacetylation, deacetylation and demethylating pathways that go on. And uh, that might sound like a lot of fancy schmancy type of lingo, but essentially it just means that the nutrients that we consume from uh, m- macro and micronutrients have an influence on how our genes are functioning. Mm-hmm. Um, I use a program called Opus 23, uh, which uh, was actually designed by Dr. Diadamo. And essentially, it's a software that um, you input some of your genomic data, uh, like a 23andMe or Ancestry or uh, Diagnostic Solutions Labs also has one. Um, I'm an advisor for them. Um, so uh, just disclaimer there. But not, nonetheless, you can use whichever one you like. And essentially what the program will do is it will tell you which nutrients impact uh, certain gene targets uh, based on in vitro, in vivo, animal, and human trials. And what we've learned is that there's a lot more things that our our food impacts than we think. One of the misconceptions behind nutrigenomics is um, I'm I'm very uh, much opposed to the reductionistic approach. It's kind of short-sighted, I think, and it misses a lot of the uh, broader picture. So I take a more of a synergistic approach um, where you look at things and how they communicate with each other. And this is essentially how the body works, is if you try to give 
one specific nutrient, it will likely influence multiple different receptors and multiple different genes. Um, and multiple different genes will impact multiple different, or one gene might, in, might impact multiple different uh, nutrients and how they're metabolized and absorbed and et cetera. So uh, nutrigenomics is a way of just understanding how these different nutrients communicate with genes, whether they upregulate, downregulate, and, and very infrequently um, are they um, completely suppressive. Or so, so they're not usually completely agonists or completely antagonists. Um, even if you look at some statins, right? So a statin medication, not necessarily nutrigenomics there, but it's a, it's a medication that inhibits an enzyme called HMG-CoA reductase, right? And it's a very specific target. Um, but even then, it doesn't completely suppress the enzyme, right? It doesn't it complete, but it, what it does do, it upregulates something called LDL receptors. And um, LDL receptors help us clear cholesterol. But even then, it doesn't completely uh, increase LDL receptors. And also, there are other nutrients that have impacts on that as well. So what I try to do is say, okay, well, uh, nutrients certainly can impact your genes, but there's, it's more about variety. Uh, and it's more about understanding uh, the load, so the, the quantity, uh, frequency, uh, and also the affinity that it has for a specific gene or receptor. And that largely is um, not something that I could uh, dictate to you now. It has mm -hmm. to be individualized per individual. For sure. So a little bit off, but not totally. Um, when it comes to the gut, we can see a lot of dysfunction show up as allergies and et cetera. It can come in many ways. But what are some things that you have seen that could be gut dysfunction that maybe don't show up as, oh, my stomach hurts, like the normal um, gut dysfunction. What, what ways can you see a gut dysfunction? So what ways would you see it that are not typical my tummy hurts? Yes. Yeah. Just for yeah. listeners that might not know. Yeah, so um, uh, GI disruption, uh, there usually is some type of gut uh, involvement in terms of, um, you know, uh, acid reflux or... Uh, constipation or diarrhea or loose stools. Um, but not many people are very in tune with it. Right? They would just okay. kind of say, Oh, I've, I've had a bowel movement every third day for my whole life. Like doesn't everybody. And mm -hmm. no, not, not everybody does that. So, uh, that, that's one thing is number one, are they in tune with that? But things that are atypical GI issues, number one, yeah. uh, overactive bladder, um, uh, chronic pelvic pain or prostatitis, what we call chronic uh, prost abacterial prostatitis, uh, largely involved with the, the microbiome and gut issues. Um, and it's interesting because the, the, when men go see their urologist, how does the urologist find their prostate? It's usually through their colon, right? They go through their mm -hmm. rectum and kind of try to feel for the prostate and the prostate and the colon are so close to each other that uh, there might be some communication between the two via the microbiome and what the microbiome might influence that, uh, that nervous system complex that actually lives between those two uh, organs. Mm -hmm. uh, other things you can look at, um, uh, you can see things like poor sleep quality. So if you are eating late at night and you're not digesting your food properly or you're having to have a meal, you'll see it impact your heart rate, you'll see it impact your sleep quality. Uh, acne, uh, skin issues, mm -hmm. uh, rashes, allergies, um, like 
not like you're, you know, you're allergic to peanuts, although there is a gut connection there, but more of chronic allergies. And I can't figure out what's going on here. And usually that's due to some type of atopy that's, that's present in order for there to be an allergy, the body needs to see some type of protein. And in order for there to be some type of protein, it needs to enter the bloodstream. And in order for it to enter the bloodstream, we need to, an avenue to do so. So it could be the gut. Uh, sometimes it could be the lungs. Sometimes it could be the nose. Um, but the gut is a very common avenue that these, um, these proteins, these allergenic proteins can enter the body. So those are a few that kind of come off the top of my head. Um, and then, you know, there is obviously the, the PMS and um, a, a period uh, or menstrual irregularities. And that's because your gut uh, helps you metabolize and eliminate some of these es uh, estrogen metabolites. Mm -hmm. And if those are not eliminated properly, they get reabsorbed and uh, can wreak havoc. Yeah. Well, what you were saying about the prostate and the colon, that just made me think about like how my digestion will change like around my cycle. Um, and that I'm assuming is proximity to like the uterus and the, the female reproductive organs. I'm not really sure. Um, I did have a question about allergies. Um, so... In the case of like a dog or a cat, um, I don't know if it's the dander or their skin or their fur or whatever, those allergies, um, obviously you're not like necessarily inhaling those or eating those, but maybe I guess, I guess you're inhaling like small particles, but um, what do you know, like what the genesis for those allergies is? It's from the protein found on their saliva that yeah. they usually put on their fur or their hair or I have a dog, mm -hmm. um, and it's those proteins that get onto the skin of the dog, uh, and then if you, I guess, inhale or touch the dog or cat, and then you touch an eye or a mucous membrane, it gets inside. Because remember, uh, your your eye and those mucous membranes in your nose and your mouth, mm -hmm. um, they're essentially a free avenue to the inside of the body. That's the gut. Yeah. Are you more likely to get? Um allergies if you breathe like through your nose versus your mouth or vice versa no do you know no different no no that's so interesting not an allergist but i, I would assume not yeah yeah i just thought maybe it's a bigger hole <laughs> but <laughs> that. um so you mentioned something in the last question about estrogen being able to kind of uh, eliminate your estrogen and i know that you can have gene snips that actually don't allow you to do that properly. So I don't know. Um, I just found that interesting. I learned that recently. And I don't know if you could explain a little bit about why estrogen detoxification is very important from the gut specifically. Yeah. So uh, it's a, essentially these detoxification enzymes are located in our liver mostly. Okay. Our liver, uh, you know, my histology professor, Dr. Martin, I remember, Freaking love that guy. He was so smart um, and, and nice to me, which is cool, even though it was a hell of a hard class. He taught us histology and did a little bit of biochem. You remember all your professors. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I really love school. Yeah. Um, <laughs> debating on going back for my PhD, which is probably a third, would it be my third degree? No, this would be my, that would be my fourth degree. Um, what did you yeah, get before? I got a PhD, it would be my fourth. What did you get before naturopath? Oh, well, you um, went to my bachelor's in nutrition. 
and I have my master's in traditional in acupuncture and traditional Chinese medicine, and then my doctorate in naturopathic medicine. Wow! And then the IFM is just um, it's just certification. <laughs> not so easy yeah. certification, though. <laughs> it is. It is not. It is very hefty. Yeah, I know. Um, back to, yes, back I, to the question. I, back to estrogen yeah, detox. Yeah. So uh, the reason why is because I do want to get my PhD and something along these lines. Uh, mm-hmm. But essentially, the liver is involved in detoxification, and your detoxification enzymes usually go through phase one or phase two. So phase one are usually the cytochrome enzymes, um, and phase two is variable but sulfation, glucuronidation, uh, methylation, uh, acetylation. I could go on and on. Um, but We're lost. These, these so. I'm not. Ahead, I'm not because <laughs> I've researched this, so I'm interested. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so <laughs> Okay, so I'll slow down a little bit. So you have cytochrome enzymes, which make uh, we call CYPs, cytochrome CYP, and there's various series. There's cytochrome three A four and three three fifty, and multiple different kinds. Um, the several that impact. Uh, the uh, estrogen metabolism is cytochrome 1A1 and 1B, uh, 1B1. Mm-hmm. And these are involved in whether your estrone E1 uh, goes towards the uh, 2-hydroxy or the 4-hydroxy pathway. And these metabolites have, a, uh, have an affinity for estrogen receptors, but also they have an affinity to produce these adducts with your DNA and potentially cause DNA damage. And we suspect that long-term chronic exposure, and remember, this is... The, this is kind of like where I come across in my philosophy of, of synergism. It's not about the mega dose. It's about the micro chronic dose, right? So um, I'm not concerned about a mega stressor. I'm more concerned about the micro stressors that you experience every single day. Um, and these elevated uh, two series estrogens, the two oxy estrone, um, are um, micro stressors. And as they continue to build up, uh, potentially because of these enzymes that are responsible for metabolizing them, they can wreak havoc on the body. And that's why a lot of women experience some uh, PMS pain as well and menstrual irregularities and just significant symptoms around their estrogen uh, or their cycle. So uh, these enzymes are involved in metabolizing these hormones. There's also 3A4, which is responsible for converting estrone to 16 uh, series of 16-hydroxyestrone. Uh, Nonetheless, um, then the body will have to eliminate those. And most of the way that it eliminates after the first step is via the second step. And the second step is commonly glutathione, but it can also involve things like um, um, acetylation or methylation, like COMT, uh, catechol methyltransferase, which is an enzyme which has epigenetic uh, influence. So certain uh, nutrients can impact its uh, activity, most uh, commonly magnesium, vitamin B6. Um, and, and those impact the way you metabolize these uh, estrogens and everything else that goes along with it. So, um, when you look at somebody who has a gut issue, um, the liver is first step. So liver is really the gut. Um, most people don't think about it, but it is because it helps you with metabolizing things. And many people may have heard of hepatic first pass. So essentially liver first dibs and liver first dibs means that it gets everything that comes through first. Um, and it also gets all the junk from the body. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, that's one part. Um, second part is you also require bile to eliminate some of these toxins. As the bile goes through the gut, 
um, it tries to eliminate them and uh, remove them. And it, the quicker they get out, the better they uh, better for you and the less likely they are to be reabsorbed. But even during that process, there are other enzymes that, that, uh, that are made by bacteria called beta-glucuronidase. And beta-glucuronidase is an enzyme that um, deglucuronidates or removes the uh, glucuronidation that occurs. And what that does is essentially makes some of these things, these toxins that it metabolized to try to be reabsorbed. So essentially what would happen is that the body would take estrogen, metabolize it, makes metabolites of estrogen, those go in the gut via uh, glucuronidation, they're in the gut. Uh, and then the bacteria in the gut make the enzyme and say, okay, we're going to remove this glucuronal uh, side chain and that makes it more available to be reabsorbed. So essentially your body was trying to get rid of it and now it gets back in um, because your gut is imbalanced. And ah. that's, that's the, okay, so now it's the ha-ha moment. Okay, yeah. got it. Yeah, so, so that's how it works. So you want to have like I know that there's obviously all sorts of bacteria in your gut. So if you don't have enough of the good bacteria, is that kind of the situation when this happens? Or it's mostly microbial diversity. So when you have less commensal, more um, pathogenic, um, and more opportunist bacteria, mm-hmm. the more likely that those uh, the imbalance is going to occur. Uh, a, a large majority of the literature suggests that it's about microbial diversity more than anything else. Mm-hmm. And I can't tell you, uh, you know, eat this food to increase X. Mm-hmm. I can tell you, you can eat more pomegranates, you can eat more cranberry and resistant starch to increase certain commensal bacteria, uh, aka um, eat more prebiotics. And that's probably going to be more influential than anything else. Um so it's more about diversity, but a few guys that you really want in there, uh, you want the lactobacilli, the bifidobacterium, um, um, acromancia, another really mm-hmm. big player, keystone mm-hmm. uh, probiotic. That's very important. Um, those would probably be like the top three. I mean, there's those are just genuses. There's larger areas to go through. I, um, so I'm in physical therapy school right now and we were, we're, I'm taking neuroscience and one of the diseases that we talk about is obviously Parkinson's. Um, and, and so I'm kind of wondering if this is chicken or the egg, but an early sign or a common correlation is depression. Um, and I was just wondering, uh, what, if any, I'm assuming there is one, but I'm going to say if any, to just to, um, say that uh, connection there is to depression and the gut. And if you know of any research um, that talks about even Parkinson's or other um, brain diseases that turn into body diseases um, that are related to the gut. Yeah. And when I hear a lot of people talk about this, um, I think there's, um, it's great to be humble and know when you don't know the entirety of the story. And I think individuals who will jump and say, well, that's a gut connection, right? And mm-hmm. unable to really identify exactly how and where is um, a little bit far reaching, in my opinion. Is there a connection between um, gut disorders, IBS, IBD, and depression? Yes, there is. We, we know that. Um, is one causing the other? Um, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you that most people who deal with IBS, um, 
and even myself, I experienced IBS for most of my life. There was certainly an emotional and stress stressor component to it, but I can't say that there's a gut cause to Parkinson's disease. And the reason why there's a early depression symptom of Parkinson's because there's a depletion of uh, dopamine mm-hmm. due to atrophy of the substantia nigra. But um, when it comes to identifying a gut cause of that, uh, you, many people will say, well, you know, majority of the, your neurotransmitters are made in your gut, but they usually don't reach your brain. Um, they're usually local and they have a local effect. Now there is indication that uh, some of these probiotic can impact neurotransmitters and they can have a systemic effect. But I can't say the um, expansion to how how far that reaches into other uh, psycho- psychological disorders. Um, I know that when it comes to Alzheimer's, there's a lot of research there in the microbiome, and I think if anything, uh, the I wouldn't say it's a neurotransmitter issue. I would say that if there is inflammation in the gut, it's more likely going to be systemic as well. And if you mm-hmm. don't correct that then it's a micro stressor that's contributing to the totality of the symptoms. And most people don't uh, understand that they, that's a reductionistic approach. And they say, well, gut Parkinson's, right? And I say gut inflammation, uh, lack of bowel movements, uh, feeling unwell, bloating, not going outside, like trickle down effect mm-hmm. leads to et cetera. Yeah, correlation for sure. Yeah, I guess maybe it was unclear the way I asked the question, but I was just thinking about the correlations and just, it's so, it just seems, it's so weird to me that we aren't paying more attention to like mental health um, early on. Uh, But I guess just, you know, societal norms or the way that people are raised kind of prevents them from from asking for help. Um, But yeah, I just thought that was very, very interesting and sad, obviously, but hopefully we'll get better at dealing with these things in the future. And I don't think we can discount what you said, right? I'm not. I, I, I don't. I'm not discounting the fact that I'm not saying that there isn't a connection. Um, there, there probably is, but mechanistically, I can't outline it. So mm-hmm. um, it's it's hard to make those jumps. But there, there is something there. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go a little off topic. But selfishly, I just am interested in your response to what I'm going to ask. Um, there's something called God antibodies. And I'm wondering, and it has to do with GABA and glutamine. And if I'm just wondering if you can... Uh, I'm sorry, GAD Yeah, GAD. Anti-GAD antibodies. Yeah. Yep. I guess my accent's coming out. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I'm just wondering if you can explain a little bit about... Um, GABA as a neurotransmitter and how that connection works. And if maybe there's a correlation potentially there to gut as well. So. Yeah. The anti-GAD antibodies are uh, markers of uh, early onset diabetes, uh, insulin uh, related insufficiency, usually because what happens is it destroys the uh, beta cells of the pancreas. Um, and that's a marker of, uh, the anti-GAD uh, antibodies are a marker of that process occurring. Uh, yes, certainly um, glutamate and GABA are involved in that process. Uh, it's a very interesting question. I, I don't know the exact answer of um, can GABA and neurotransmitters contribute to that. Um, it's kind of analogous to saying, well, you know, um, 
you know, if somebody's having antithyroid antibodies, right, or anti-TPO or antithyroglobulin yeah. antibodies, um, does it have to do with the fact that there's selenium and zinc involved in thyroid synthesis, right? It's like, yeah, they're all involved. I can't say whether GABA yeah. or, or um, glutamate are involved in that. Um, but certainly if somebody's GAD antibodies coming back positive, I'm, I'm really, really focused on preventing diabetes. Yeah. Very so type one diabetes? Correct. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Autoimmune diabetes. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. All right. Well, we have a few more questions. Where can people find you if they'd like to work with you? Because this was one of our most informative episodes and I know people are going to probably want to reach out and I know you're in New York and so is some Mm -hmm. of our audience. So, (laughs) yeah. So unfortunately I'm not taking on new patients at the time. Um, (laughs) you're busy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah, sometimes beyond what I what I want. Uh, but I would recommend uh, people just reach out or find me on my Instagram at dr.ralphesposito. My website is the same exact thing, and so is my Twitter handle. Um, my focus right now is just really bringing education, making sure people understand stuff like what we spoke about. Um, I I get I, it's it's kind of shameful to say this, but I didn't get into this profession because I wanted to be rich. If, if that was the case, I'd probably go into finance. Um, so most of my, most of my information out there is a, from a passion perspective and just really making sure people understand the importance of this stuff. And, um, and because I'm not taking on patients, I help you find people who are, um, at the time. Awesome. Very true. And your Instagram is filled with so much information. So I know when people go and yeah. try and search you and find you and we'll, we'll link your stuff. Um, to this episode, I know people will get a lot of information. I started following you over a year, maybe two years ago, actually. Oh, found your stuff, and I was just like, "He gets it." So, way more than I do. So, I'm going to learn off of it. <laughs> so, sure. that that's that's the end goal. And and actually, truthfully, a lot of the people who reach out to me are other physicians um, who just have clinically complex cases, and they're like, "I don't know how to address this." And I have cardiologists reach out to me. I have uh, uh, other acupuncturists, I have endocrinologists. I mean, it's really like, um, I mean, I, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but everything's connected. So you really, whether you're an internist or a neurologist or a acupuncturist or a physical therapist or mm-hmm. personal trainer, all of the above, this mm-hmm. thing, these things matter. I couldn't agree more. So our last question for you, and we ask this to all of our guests, um, but what is something that you do every day to move your brain, move your body, or both? And it doesn't have to really be every day. It could be like most One of thing time. that does both? Well, uh, or one thing for each or whatever. Uh, okay. <laughs> so um, if your listeners are still listening, I meditate every single day. Um, I probably miss on occasion one day a week, maybe, but... Uh, I use the app 10% Happier, and I think I was on a streak of like 60 days in a row. Wow. So um, I, I very much make sure I meditate every single day. Um, I exercise about five to six times a week. So whether it's strength training or running sprints or walking, um, I'm kind of due for my walk now. Um, I fit you guys in during my walking session. So Thank uh, you. I know what it's like to sacrifice your exercise, so we really appreciate that. <laughs> So I make sure I walk at some point every single day. Um, so that's the movement. That's the mind. 
Uh, and most people don't consider this to be mind, but it's, uh, I love cooking and it's kind of like how I'm not a creative person at all. Like if you ask me to creatively think about a new topic or something, I'd be like, ah, I don't know, whatever. Um, figure out, find somebody else who's like artsy, but art, uh, food is my art and I love to cook. Um, I also love to eat. So I have <laughs> both to my advantage. So that's my thinking. That's my doing, and that's my other thinking. Cool. That's I love awesome. to cook too. Yeah, we're we're yeah. all on the same wavelength here. I like to cook, but you don't want to eat my food. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you don't. <laughs> she knows. Um, oh, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. We it was such a pleasure to have you and be able to share what you're doing because I think you're really making an impact on functional medicine. So. Um, I'm just happy to have had you on so we can just continue to share um, the positive part of good medicine. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Move Your Brain, Move Your Body podcast. Join in every week as we release new episodes. Subscribe or leave us a rating at Apple Podcasts. If you have questions or topics to cover, please email moveyourbb at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at moveyourbb.